monsters and ghosts to otherworldly beings. Join the explorers as they venture into the darkest realm seeking the truth to what goes bump in the night. Good evening and welcome to Explorers Seekers of the Truth, episode 49. I am Chad 42. Charles. 42. 49, <laughs> 50, 75, who knows anymore. Uh-huh. Um, I am, of course, Chad Charlesworth, and as always, I am joined by my best friend and co-host, Lesson Cabbage. So, you know, besides technical difficulties, how are you doing this evening, Les? I'm good. Uh, I don't know how well you're doing, considering your computer didn't want to cooperate with you. So, Chad is actually joining us through the BeLive phone app, so that's why his screen is going all over the place, because his computer didn't want to cooperate Big surprise. Why Why would anything go smoothly for us? At all. Well, of course. <laughs> I, I, I don't know anymore. <laughs> well, I'd like to welcome everybody to the show. And as Chad said, well, didn't say, it is our 42nd episode, not our 49th. And we're really glad to have everybody with us tonight. But before we begin, I have to go through my usual spiel. Because it wouldn't be one of our shows without it, now would it? No, of course You can. Not. No, it couldn't. Exactly. You could find us at our website, www.explorersgroup.com. There you can see some of our archive shows, some of the evidence that we have out there. Hopefully we get some new stuff because we have some really cool um, investigations planned in the near future. Uh, so once we go and do some of that, we're not going to re- reveal any locations, but you guys all saw the polls that we had out on our Facebook page. Um, so you'll know kind of some of the places that we're hoping to get to uh, this year. Um, but anyway, you could go see some of the stuff that we had found at uh, other places uh, at the website. Uh, we're on Twitter at Explorers Group. We're on Facebook, facebook.com backslash Explorers Group. And on Instagram and iTunes and YouTube. iTunes and YouTube just Google, just search uh, Explore Seekers of the Truth and you'll find us. I, for whatever reason, they don't give us a, a decent link. So I, I do apologize for that. So now, before we get into tonight's topic, uh, I believe we have an oddity of the week, if I'm not mistaken. Can you, yeah. uh, can you enlighten our listeners on what that might be, Mr. Charlesworth? I could try. That would be awesome. So our oddity of the week this week comes to us from... KUTV out of Salt Lake City, Utah. And the story that um, they're reporting is a man told police he was shot at and nearly hit by two bullets because a man in Montana thought he was a Bigfoot. <laughs> now, this this is this story just is beyond ridiculous and just scary. Mm-hmm. So the man reported that he confronted the shooter who told him he fired at him because he was not wearing orange and thought he was a Bigfoot. Oh, my God. The Montana sheriff, uh, Leo Dutton, told the independent record in uh, Helena that the man who was shot at said a bullet missed him by about three feet to his left and then another bullet missed him to his right. He ran to cover in a group of trees. (laughs) The 27-year-old target shooter was on BLM land and was setting up targets when the shooter mistook him for Bigfoot. Mm. 
When he identified and then confronted the shooter, he discovered a man in a black Ford F-150 truck who said, I thought you were a Bigfoot, according to, you know, according to the target story here, as reported by the Ohio Statesman. I did not. I do not target practice, but I see something that looks like Bigfoot. I just shoot at it. The shooter was quoted as saying. Now, this is also a, a woman was actually shot at by a black Ford F-150 um, in this area. So but Bigfoot wasn't mentioned in that report, though, was it? I don't. Well, yeah, that one I don't think mentions the Bigfoot story, but I don't know if the woman confronted the shooter in that uh-huh. story necessarily. So, but who, who goes out and just is randomly firing at people who are out somewhere, especially like this guy was at a target range and this guy just decided to start shooting at him because he thought he was Bigfoot. Wow. Yeah. You, you would think a target range generally is an open area. Yeah. Like, I mean, you have targets down, down the, the, the range, you know? Uh, so clearly you would expect people to be out there setting up targets, setting up, you know, whatever they, they're going to be using as to, to practice uh, shooting. What, what would give somebody the, the, the idea, what would go through somebody's mind to say, that, that's, that's definitely not a guy. That's a Bigfoot. It's got to be because, you know, Bigfoot just frequent shooting ranges. The person, it just, like I said, this is one of those like scary stories that there's a person out there dumb enough to just be shooting. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, like you said, at a target range. Like, first of all, if anything, wouldn't like a Bigfoot type creature avoid those areas? Right, right. Yeah, because, I mean, according to reports, people say that Bigfoot, I guess, uh, are intuitive enough to know, to to make that association that when there's people around, there's firearms, there's guns, and that's why they typically try to avoid uh, humans when they're active in, in their areas, just the same as they try to say that Bigfoot can recognize and identify a trail camera, so on and so forth, which I have my own... Uh, thoughts on on that whole situation, but that's for another show. <clears throat> but the dude he sh- he pulls up in an F one fifty and shoots from the truck, or did he get out of the truck? It doesn't. I don't think it says in there that the person like if he shot from the truck or had gotten out of the truck. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of like either way. I mean, it, it's it's ridiculous that somebody would be, but I, I do know deer hunters that have shot from their truck, you know, yeah, at, you know, at yeah, deer and stuff yeah. like that. Even though they're not supposed to. Yeah. Um, and, and it's funny too, that, that a woman had the same experience, although like, like it, it said that Bigfoot wasn't mentioned, but it seems to me that this dude just seems to like to toy with people more so than actually thinking it was a Bigfoot. I think he just likes going around and shooting at people, you know, just to, that, I guess, maybe for a thrill or whatever. Because if he shot at a woman and then he was shooting at somebody else, but because the guy confronted him, oh, I thought you were a Bigfoot, which is kind of a very odd 
excuse. You know what I mean? But and and I I don't know if the man is a hunter or not. But don't you typically you you want to identify what you're shooting at before you shoot at something? I mean, just common sense, especially something that you that that looks human or resembles a human. Yeah, you would. I mean, you're kind of you know you got to know what your target is, what's behind your target, stuff like that. It, it it's very odd that somebody's just. It, it just makes me believe that the person's not all together with it. Right, right, right. Yeah, I don't know. This one is uh, is is a crazy one. <laughs> just, well, it's almost as as. And I, I don't mean, I, I guess I got to choose my words wisely because I don't want to uh, show any disrespect. But the guy who was running around as a Bigfoot and got hit by multiple cars in a ghillie suit. Like, yeah. I mean, come on. People really got to start using uh, using their heads. I mean, it's bad enough that the dude got hit by a car. And I think he died, actually, didn't he? I kind of have a feeling that's what happened to the guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean... I feel sorry for the for the guy, but at the same time, it's kind of like, why would you go out there try to impersonate this creature? You know, it was bad enough that you got hit by a car, but I mean, if he didn't, he he runs the risk of getting shot. Just like you know, in this situation where somebody was just going out and setting up targets, and a person thought he was a bigfoot and shot him. Now, this I think, like I said, I think this is more of somebody who is just out for getting a rise out of people or or just messing with people and dangerously but you know and cindy hall has a a good comment down there let me see if i can bring it up she says jeans and a t-shirt versus a ghillie suit there's nothing mentioned in the report about what that person was wearing was there i don't think so well i imagine it if it's this time of year and in montana the person probably had a coat on and you know was bundled up a little bit yeah, or maybe they were wearing camo, which kind of made it look like they were, you know. But I still, don't know. It, it doesn't give you a reason to shoot at them. Right, <laughs> right. And I mean, honestly, like, you should be able to tell the difference between clothing and fur. Yeah, you would would hope that, you know. People would be intelligent enough. But then again we are living in a pretty crazy world these days so who knows yeah hold on one second i'm sorry i now all of a sudden my camera is working oh hey how about that uh i gotta shut off i don't think my mic's gonna kick on though well, whatever you were doing, I heard it. I don't know if it was coming through your headphone microphone or your actual microphone, but. Well, that's a problem. I have this mic right next to me. Hello, yeah. hello, hello, hello. I hear you if you're talking through. You know yes. what? Just keep going through your phone and your headphones, because I, if you mess with it, knowing our luck, you'll end up getting booted off again. And I'll be doing the rest of the show solo. And I don't want that. Is that okay? Uh, yeah, Because okay you sound good to, to, from from what I could tell. You, you're coming through loud and clear. Well, of course I sound good, Les. <laughs> you got that buttery voice, baby. No, I don't. But <laughs> so now that this ridiculousness is out of the way, 
we're going to get into tonight's main topic there, right, Les? Yes, yes. Let's get into it. Um, we're going to travel back in time uh, this evening, and we're going to get whisked away to Western Pennsylvania. Now picture it. It's December 9th, 1965. You're in a small town of Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. You're told of a meteor that has crossed six states and Canada as it heads towards your town. You go out to scan the night sky in hopes to catch a glimpse of this mysterious object. You think, could this be some sort of Soviet attack? When you get outside, you can now see how low the object is, and suddenly you realize it's about to plummet into the earth in the woods nearby. Once it makes contact with land, you rush out to the area to see what it is. You observe an acorn-shaped object with strange symbols on it, but you're quickly rushed away by military personnel. What is it? Where did it come from? These questions haunt you for years. You're fed information and reports, but none of which match what you witnessed that evening. Dun, dun, dun. That's so funny because I was going to do that when you finished. <laughs> <laughs> but that's right. Tonight we're going to be discussing the what is known as the Pennsylvania Roswell, or as it is, you know, identified by most, the Kecksburg UFO incident, mm -hmm. which occurred on December 9th, 1965 in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, as Les had mentioned, mm -hmm. in the good old U.S. of A. Mm -hmm. Now, citizens of six United States states and Canada reported a brilliant flaming fireball over Detroit, Michigan, Windsor, Canada. Astronomers said it was likely a meteor burning um, burning up in the atmosphere and descending at a steep angle. Mm. NASA released a statement in 2005 reporting that experts had examined fragments from the area and determined that they were from bum, 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 <laughs> a Russian satellite. Mm. But records of their findings were lost in the 1990s isn't that how it always happens the mysterious yeah. vanishing of all reported records and any kind of information or intel pertaining to such events well that's always yeah that's always the funny thing is they just randomly those files in particular disappear Mm -hmm. They have the most mundane, like, Jenny or ordered toilet paper for the upstairs men's room filed. That never <laughs> yeah. that never disappears. No, no, no. But Larry saw a UFO, and we had some kind of fragmental evidence of it. Then then all of a sudden it's, uh, yeah, we, we don't know what happened to that. It must have uh, <laughs> must have got shredded at some point or burned up in a fire. Uh -huh. Well, you know, if, if there's one thing that you could get from this, like all these uh, reports that that come from, you know, these government facilities or or even local uh, state uh, government. Uh, what, what do you want to call it? Like state uh, departments and whatnot. They're, they're really not good at keeping track of any of their stuff. Or or they that's what they lead us to believe. Right, right. You know, I can't imagine that these um these agencies are that terrible at right, keeping right. records or or keeping their records in a safe storage facility. <laughs> like I said, they have paper towel orders from the nineteen seventies, but for some reason they can't find a uh document that says this was a russian satellite could yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it, it just doesn't make sense no no 
Now, NASA responded to a court order, you know, as part of the Freedom of Information Act request to search for the records. Mm -hmm. And of course, this incident, you know, had gained notoriety and, you know, popular culture and ufology with the speculations raging from alien craft to debris from the uh, Soviet space probe um, Cosmos 96. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some reports on uh, things caused by the object range from hot metal debris over Michigan and northern Ohio, uh, grass fires and sonic booms in the Pittsburgh metropolitan area uh, were attributed to the fireball. Uh, some people in the village of Kecksburg, about 30 miles southeast of Pittsburgh, reported something crashing into the woods with wisps of blue smoke, vibrations, and a, dis a distinct thump sound. You know, everything you just listed to me just sounds like a Raconteurs album. <laughs> Hot metal debris over Michigan sounds like a live, you know, yeah, a live right. track. And, you know, vibration and distinct thump sounds like a uh, studio album. It does. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I got to make fun of most of this stuff tonight because otherwise oh, yeah. I'm going to go crazy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and according to the initial story in the uh, Greensburg uh, Tribune review, the area where the object landed was immediately sealed off on the order of the U.S. Army and the state police officials, mm -hmm. reportedly in anticipation of a close inspection of whatever had fallen. State police, state police officials there ordered the area roped off to wait and expect the arrival of both U.S. Army engineers and possibly civilian scientists. When the state troopers and Air Force personnel searched the woods, they reported they found absolutely nothing. A subsequent edition in the um, Tribune Review bore the headline, Searchers Fail to Find Object. Hmm. Interesting. Well, here's some back information on the area that we're discussing this evening. Uh, Kecksburg is an incorporated community in Mount Pleasant Township, Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania, and is located along PA Route uh, 982 in a heavily wooded area about 30, 30 miles southeast of Pittsburgh at an elevation about 1,209 feet. So it's kind of a remote, uh, secluded area. Yeah, it, definitely one of those parts of Pennsylvania that are uh, less uh, densely populated, more rural area. You know, even being 30 miles from Pittsburgh, it's still kind of out there. I've been, I, I don't think I've ever actually been in Kecksburg, but I've been through that part of the state a couple times, and it's kind of tree, 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 house. <laughs> Bigfoot. <laughs> Bigfoot, tree, tree, UFO. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we, 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 we make light of this and we jest, but in all honesty, that area, and, and we'll talk more about this in another show and whatnot, but uh, what makes this whole phenomenon interesting is that area of Western PA is kind of a hotbed of all different kind of uh, – paranormal extraterrestrial uh i guess cryptozoological all kinds of oddities um call that area home yeah it, it's um an area i guess of what is the the modern term for an area of high strangeness i don't know yeah i guess that's what people are you know calling certain areas now <laughs> yeah a hotbed of paranormal activity <laughs> That's what I'd call it, but yeah, hotbed. Hotbed. 
<laughs> that sounds like it could be a poison <laughs> album. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Now, according to MUFON, eyewitnesses claim to have seen now this yeah, it was a report from you know a MUFON file. According to the first witnesses to report the incident, um, and the person's name was Francis Kelp, who reported seeing a fiery object crash into the woods and called the WHJB radio station at around 5.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Mm-hmm. Now, she contacted the station's reporter and news director, John Murphy, who in turn immediately reported the incident to the Pennsylvania State Police. Multiple witnesses managed to investigate the scene before the military officials arrived. Of them were the fire department officials, regular civilians, Murphy himself, and the uh, Pennsylvania State Police. Hmm. Which is interesting because you have uh, the reporter, uh, Murphy, right? He, mm-hmm. Or the news director. You have the uh, fire department officials and a slew of regular civilians. Now, oh, and the state police. So all those different departments and those people now okay i could understand the civilians getting written off just because i guess it's a little bit easier to do because they don't bear credibility but all these other departments that were witness to this and all this you know where's all their reports where's all their information well yeah that you know is one of the kind of interesting things when you when you have like fire department officials now i'm sure again it goes back to in the 60s how how were things documented you know for a rural fire department was their records kept you know past you know they may have kept records on the number of calls where they went what what the outcomes were but were they kept for five years, seven years, 10 years, and then, you know, destroyed or lost. Now there's, there is more of people I would believe probably lost their records, not losing, you know, not NASA losing records. I could see a, a small rural fire, fire department mm-hmm. kind of misplacing things or, you know, Oh, we need town council needs to see that. So the file is taken to the council meeting and it gets passed around and somehow gets forgotten, you know, a a chamber, you know, somebody coming in to clean it up after the meeting. Oh, you know, they must have left this here, tosses it on a pile. It disappears. Right. You know, it's in some file for the sewage treatment plant that got destroyed seven years later. Can, can you hear me? Am I am I on here still? I can hear you. All right, because I just uh, my video feed for whatever reason got kicked out, and I had to put myself back in. So I just want to make sure that you can still hear me. Yeah, it did. You went away for a second, but then all of a sudden I, you came back, and I was sitting here talking. Yeah, but, and again, yeah, I, I, I touched. I touched nothing. It's just <laughs> gotta love be live. Mm-hmm. Good thing I paid so much money for this shit. You know. <laughs> yeah. That that's yeah, that's a different story. That's that's for when we just do a Facebook live or a YouTube show directly, like from one of our phones somewhere, and we can tell you all the lovely stuff that goes on behind the scenes. Oh God! Now this, um, I have another report here. Now this comes from Doug Yorchi. Mm-hmm. I guess that's how you say his name. Looks like it. And it was re- 
I'm trying to, of course, my font on my computer is always crappy on the screen. It was, it was a warm December night in 1965. I was 14 years old, and my cousin John was 12. As we left my house to sneak a few cigarettes down the alley, sounds like a, sin, a less sin cabbage move, <laughs> yeah. we lived in the suburban community of Bridgeville, about 12 miles southeast or southwest of downtown Pittsburgh. We came to the lithographic building, which had a loading dock in the back. It was the perfect place to sit and smoke in secret. We knew we had to leave soon. The time was getting late into the evening. But before we made our way back to the house, something pierced the night sky over my left shoulder. Our heads turned to the left, and our eyes could not help but notice a bright ball of light. Both John and I were stunned, our mouths dropped. The object was about the size of a full moon, and it trailed sparks or little bits of light. The odd thing about it was the thing did not fall straight down. The UFO went laterally sideways, almost up whenever this was. Whenever this was, it could not have been a meteor, a shooting star, or space debris falls down a natural object does not move horizontally meters ah, meteorites do not go up mm. so basically what this kid was saying if i didn't butcher the whole story there you uh, did, you, you did. <laughs> i gotta change you, the, you need to change that font <laughs> yeah i gotta change the font on these things because it's hard for me to read them on that other well monitor. i noticed that you darkened the font too so it's easier to read it's not that bright red that you had before and it's nah. still still hard well, it's on the TV screen monitor that I have that kind of ah, screws me yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, now what the kid was saying was basically that this object was not just dropping. It was mm. it had propulsion like movement where it was you know going but it wasn't coming straight down, it was coming down on an angle. And basically it he says it almost went up so almost like something was trying to correct its course, mm -hmm. like, you know, fighting, like you always watch those airplanes where they, you know, before they crash into something, they're always trying to fight the stick back, mm -hmm. you know, to get over the mountain. So it kind of sounds like he was relaying a story of something that was being moved by something, some kind of propulsion system, not just a object falling through the atmosphere. Right, right. Hmm. Interesting. So that yeah, that is that is uh, uh, I guess adds more to the uh, validity of this story where it was taking its own kind of path, almost like trying to prevent a crash landing. You know what I mean by mm -hmm. trying to to alter the, the the crash, the path of the crash in any way. So that makes me think it's obviously not uh, falling debris. It's something that has some sort of propulsion device that's going to try and keep it aloft if you will for lack of better terms i guess but uh because you can't you i i don't know much about satellites up in space but uh you can't control them once they come back into the atmosphere like you couldn't there's no propulsion uh, god i can't talk there's no propulsion device that you could control it to make it change course or like a, like a like a remote control airplane for lack of better terms 
Well, I think like the more modern stuff, they kind of have what I guess they consider like retro rockets mm-hmm. that, you know, when it does, when they're bringing it down, they can kind of control its descent. Right, right, right. So, you know, it's not crashing into like New York City at, you know, rush hour traffic time. It's, you yeah, know, going yeah. out into the ocean. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess and that 19- way they can kind of salvage the parts and whatnot, like they'll be able to yeah. recover more. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know, like, in 1965, the Soviet space program was kind of like, yeah, if we can get it up there, that's good enough for us. We're not really sure where it's going to land if it does come back. Right, because that's when the U.S. and the Soviet Union were in that big race to get to the moon and just to get in outer space and whatnot. Like, our space programs were... Yeah, we we were in the model rocket phase of the space programs at that point between the two of us. We were Mm kind of just like, yeah, we got it up there. We're not sure what's going to happen when it decides to fall back down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the next story, uh, we'll call this John's story as this is the alias given to hide the originator's uh, true identity. It goes on to say that I was a teenager then, said John. It was in the early part of December and there was a little snow and a little rain and mud. He was called to the scene after 4.44 p.m. crash as a fireman from the uh, Latrobe area to search for the crashed object. I had seen a fiery object in the sky. I can't say exactly which, re- which direction, but it was coming from the north. It was not too much longer, and the fire whistle went off, he said. I answered the call, and I was told they needed a search team because at the time they believed it was a downed aircraft. And I thought, my God... This is what I've just seen. When firemen arrived at the Kecksburg Fire Hall, maps were reviewed and groups were given sections to search. It was getting semi-dusk and we had flashlights. We were taken in the back of a truck and dropped off and told to go this way, which we did. I was not on the initial contact team. Another team found the object. It was definitely unequivocally, unequivocally, positively, absolutely no aircraft or plane helicopter or rocket at least not to my knowledge it was in an area that was part field and part woods and we went down to investigate he said we found the object had crashed at 30 at a 30 to 40 degree angle and had broken off numerous tree branches in its impact path my initial reaction was this is no airplane I observed no shrapnel, no breaking up of the the fuselage. It was one solid piece, no doors, no windows. Preliminary searches found no bodies, no casualties. It was shaped like an acorn lying on its side, like the acorn nut in its shell when it's on a a tree, he explained. I've been a mechanic, uh, uh, a machinist for 24 years, and I've worked with a tremendous amount of different metals, and I have never seen any type of metal that looked even close to that. John said the object was not broken, not even cracked, just dented a bit. It did not have, it did not give off smoke, steam, or vapors, at least none that we could see. He described the portion visible as between eight to 10 feet long, six and seven feet across, and said a man of average height would probably have a little trouble standing up inside. The crater it plowed into the ground was rectangular in shape. John said the state police were there and there was soon and and there and the area was soon quarantined. Now, um, let me just bring up a picture 
Um, this is, I guess, the description. And this I found on uh, Stan Gordon's uh, website. At, it's at www.stangordon.info. Uh, for those who don't know, Stan Gordon is a uh, Pennsylvania researcher who has dedicated uh, most of his life into the uh, search for unknown things. Uh, he's written multiple books, and I believe he actually lives out in that area. I've met him a few times. I've gone to a few of his lectures. Super nice guy, super smart, and he knows all about this. I'd love to get him on the show to talk more about this, but like I said, this image that I have on the screen now is off of his site, and as you can see, this is the basic shape of the craft. Uh, the The vertical angle is, I guess, what it would look like standing up. That's the top bottom acorn, like an upside down acorn. There is it at the uh, the thirty to forty five degree angle. There were kind of what they were describing as like hieroglyphs uh, on the um, base of the craft uh, that were indistinguishable, like nobody really knew how to read them. Uh, I want to say it was eight eight to ten feet wide. About eight, about this, almost the same in height. Um, so yeah, that just gives you a little bit of a breakdown, and you can learn more. Like I said, go to standgordon uh, dot info, and there's a lot more out there on this. So that just gives you an idea of what it looked like, what was on it, and I have another picture I'll bring up here, and this um, just is a an artistic representation of. Uh, the crash site, the the impact, the rectangular impact, uh, I guess, crater, for lack of better terms. Um, and again, this is off Stan Gordon's website, so I'll give credit where credit is due. Um, but pretty neat. I mean, if I were um, witness to this, I don't know what I would really make of it. Chad, back to yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for you to finish. That's it. Yeah, it's definitely like, I don't know. I'm getting a little confused. Why? Because if you go back to the beginning of that story Mm -hmm. that you read John's story, Mm -hmm. he says 444 p.m. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go back to the earlier stories, Mm-hmm. Um, the lady who had actually reported it to the newspaper or to the radio station reports it at 530. Okay. So we're already 45 minutes in difference mm-hmm. on timing. I'm not saying that this didn't happen. I'm just saying no, this is... No, but I mean, 45 minutes in retrospect, if, you, if you're really, if you think about it, when you're finding out the information, you're trying to process it. You're trying to make sense of it. You're talking to other people. You're, you know what I mean? You're, there's going to be time from the initial impact to the time reports start rolling in. I mean, I'm sure some would be a little bit more immediate, but I don't, I don't see that as being very odd of a time span. But go ahead. Go on. Because well, maybe you have something else to add to that. I mean, if something this memorable happened Mm -hmm. to the point of you're making a statement, you know, for years that this is what happened. This is what I saw. This is what I, you know, 
can describe to you accurately, mm-hmm. but I can't tell you exactly what time it happened. Right. So I'm not like I'm saying I'm not saying this didn't happen. This is you know gone down. There's a lot of people that you know eyewitness testimony. Uh-huh. But when you start getting to the point where you're not, you're t- one person's telling me this happened at five thirty. Other person's telling me this happened at four. Can you tell me at four o'clock, four forty, in December? In Pennsylvania, the difference in light level to five thirty. Oh yeah, it's it's day and night, quite literally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it starts getting dark at two <laughs> most mm-hmm. days. You know, it's, yeah, it's you can see the sun start setting around two o'clock. Yeah, and between quarter to five and five thirty, you you got that little bit of daylight left, and then by five thirty, by four o'clock, actually. Yeah, so I, I guess it would be dark by then because it's yeah. about four, four something. Yeah, about five o'clock would be dark. Yeah. Now, the boys' story, you know, they say it was night in December of 65. Mm-hmm. Figured they're about 14 and 12. So you figure, yeah, probably 530 would have been a time they would have had to come home. Right, right. So as they're coming home, they see this object dropping and all that stuff. Even four, you know, it, it, it's just looking at it in a objective manner mm-hmm. things like this yeah i can understand like oh it was four o'clock when this happened or it was six o'clock when this happened right right yeah you know, you, you're getting already a 45 minute differential in time so some things might not necessarily be 100 to you know say what the kids say nowadays because we're trying to get that younger audience, you know, yeah. ain't, ain't nothing a hundred on this story. But I don't know what you said, but yeah. word. <laughs> yeah. No, wait, word's too old, right? Yeah, I think that's, <laughs> they probably don't use that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> now, there are other stories, like there was a young boy who said that he saw the object land. Uh, his mother saw wisps of blue smoke arise from the woods and mm-hmm. alerted the authorities. Another reported feeling of vibration and a thump about the time the objects reported the object reportedly landed. Now, others from Kecksburgs and Kecksburg, including volunteer firefighter department members, reported finding an object in the shape of an acorn and about as large as a Volkswagen Beetle, mm-hmm. with you know writing resembling Egyptian hieroglyphics. What you know was also said to be in a band around the object. Mm-hmm. You know, there is, you know, at a certain point, witnesses report an intense military presence, Mm -hmm. most notably the United States Army, secured the area, ordered civilians out, and moved the object on a flatbed truck. At the time, however, the military claimed they had searched the woods and found absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. So... um. Do you? I think we have a photo of a representation of it being on the truck that people claim to have seen this on the truck. Now, of course, folks, this is not a actual image, you know, taken at the time. It's it's what people claim to have seen. I think that was used for like unsolved mysteries or some show. Yeah, I, I couldn't find any information if this was original photo or if it was a scene. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, I do believe that was from like an unsolved mysteries episode or something. I, I think sure you're right. Yeah, yeah. 
so that would have been cool <laughs> oh yeah i mean i i do believe something crashed mm-hmm. i do believe people that witnessed this saw blue smoke mm-hmm. i do believe they possibly saw something in the shape of an acorn yeah um i don't necessarily like i said when i'm already finding a 45 minute window of time that people are claiming it was four, you know, something that was five, something that's kind of making it a little sticky wicket for me. Yeah. You know, so I, 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 I do feel something happened here. I'm, I kind of lead to a possible answer that we'll be discussing later, mm-hmm. but now, a particular sinister piece of the Kecksburg mystery is the plight of John Murphy, who was a reporter for the local news station, uh, WHJB. Mm-hmm. And uh, like we had said earlier, he was a f- among the first on the scene and claimed to have taken photos of the object. Barred from covering the military activity and noting the investigation's extreme security measures, Murphy became convinced that a cover-up was afoot. Deter- uh, Determined to probe the matter further, he had created a radio documentary because at the time this is, you know, the way something like this would have been, you know, basically best covered, mm-hmm. you know, and the title was called the object in the woods and in which he had described what he had seen and subsequently attempted to investigate the crash. But before the piece was aired, government officials allegedly visited Murphy's home and confiscated his photos. Uh, Sources familiar with the original documentary, um, his wife in particular, stated that the aired version of Object in the Woods had been heavily edited and did not mention the mysterious object at all. Four years later, Murphy was killed in an apparent hit-and-run accident while vacationing in California. Wow. <laughs> now, this is one of those like men in black, you know. Yeah. yeah. You know, from, and, and this, his wife wasn't the only person that I guess heard the original version of this uh, right. documentary. And everybody that claims to have heard the original said it is heavily edited. And to the point where people that even heard the edited version over the years mm-hmm. said you could hear the editing. Like you could hear where he would like where he started to go down that road. And all of a sudden it's cut kind of like clipped and goes into something mundane. Right, right. You know, and then to you know, basically, they said his personality changed mm-hmm. after, like, this governmental people came to talk to him. And then the heavily edited version appears on the radio or is witnessed on the radio. Yeah. They said his personality changed where he was very uneasy, very kind of, <clears throat> you know, frantic, kind of felt like something was going on like around him and and kind of distanced himself from some people. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, to be killed four years later in an apparent hit and run. And as far as I know, 
that was never solved. Right, right. Well, let let me ask this. Now that we weren't able to obtain anything uh, as far as what I'm about to ask for for the show, did this person even exist, or is this just fluff for for the for this whole phenomenon? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I mean, we're we're basing this information off of uh, clippings we find online, different stories, you know, books, like I said, that, you know, Stan Gordon had written and stuff like that. Is that information true? You know what I mean? Is the information they found or is this all just regurgitated stories? You know what I mean? Like, Well, I would have to say Stan Gordon would probably uh, probably be the foremost expert on this. And, oh, yeah. the reason, and, and the reason I say that is uh, one of Stan's claims to fame is, A, he does live in this area. Mm-hmm. He was listening to the radio the night this happened mm-hmm. and was running between the radio and the television back and forth trying to get information. Right. And this, this, this is what uh, I believe sparked his lifelong quest in finding answers for the unknown. Yeah, I think this was, um, I, I've listened to a few things Stan has been on over the years, and I do believe this was one of his earliest. I, I know, I think he was interested in some Bigfoot type stories from his area when he was uh, maybe a little bit younger than this. I think he said he was around 15 or 16 when this happened. Right, right. And I guess from his, from what I remember hearing from him was his parents were out of town or, or excuse me, I think his mother had already passed away at that point mm-hmm. and his father was out of town and he was home alone when this happened, but he didn't actually get to the site until much later. <laughs> but as far as John Murphy as an actual historical person, Mm-hmm. Um, from what I've heard from Stan and from other people that witnessed this, John Murphy is a, you know, real or was a real person. And I'm pretty sure with a simple Google search, we could probably find his hit and run information. Of yeah, course, tried, that could also be faked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I tried, I tried to, uh, find out some more backstory information, uh, I, I came up with nothing. I don't know. But then again, like I said, I, I didn't put a lot of time into it. I just did a quick search. So maybe there is something out there. I, I don't know. But I just I just thought about this. I know, you know, as part of the topic and the stories we're telling tonight, this is all the stuff that's been collected. I don't want to get too far into it, but it just kind of made me think, you know, how how factual is a lot of the stuff that you find out there? You well, know what I mean? So many people say, all right, well, I read it online or I read it on this site and that site, so it's got to be true. But well, I, how true is it, you know? I actually just saw something, I guess it was yesterday. I was, you know, just kind of scanning through different sites and stuff like that on, you know, paranormal and ufology and um, even, I think, like Twitter and stuff like this. And there's a group out there that basically audited all the UFO uh, groups on Facebook and um, websites and 
media outlets for UFO information and Twitters and, and people's, you know, people that are spokespeople in that genre. And they basically presented a list of, I think like 200 and some, what they considered false or misleading information providers mm-hmm. in that genre alone. You know, so definitely, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there that just kind of you need to really delve a little deeper because, you know, like this, like I said, the time on this doesn't add up. Right, to, right. Yeah. You know, you start getting, <clears throat> you know, people claiming to have seen this and people claiming to see that. You know, it, it it definitely does kind of make you think like, okay, how much of this stuff is is actual fact? How much is speculation that has just been regurgitated over the years and because of its continuous regurgitation has become considered fact? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, now, the funny thing was I just like hit Google search on my other mm-hmm. – on, on the other page I've opened and I started typing in John Murphy mm-hmm. and it pulled up the uh, WHJB object in the woods, John Murphy, WHB or WHJB object in the woods. I've never typed that into that search engine in my life. Well, it's automatically linked to the name. It's Yeah. You know what I mean? So, but that was the first thing that popped up, and we're just talking about that. So, you know, it just shows how much stuff is algorithmed in your systems and stuff like that. So, it definitely could lead you. Listening. <laughs> that it, well, it could just lead you to more, you know, falsified information in the long run, mm-hmm. which then later becomes, you know, fact. Yeah. Without actually being fact. Right. Right. Or is claimed to be. Yeah. Well, now here's the thing. When it comes to actual scientific data backing up that something in the sky that evening, we do have that. Mm-hmm. Several articles were written about the fireball in science journals. The mm-hmm. February 1966 issue of Sky and Telescope reported that a fireball was seen over the Detroit Windsor area at about 4:44 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Right. The Federal Aviation Administration had received 23 reports from aircraft pilots, the first starting at 4.44 p.m., Mm -hmm. a seismograph 25 miles southwest of Detroit had recorded the shockwave created by the fireball as it passed through the atmosphere. Hmm. Now, they don't give a time on that. Right, right, right. But I would almost assume at this point it would be 4.44 p.m. (laughs) The Sky and Telescope article concluded that the path of the fireball extended roughly from the northwest to the southeast and ended in or near the western part of Lake Erie. Hmm. Now, you know... We have that 4.44 p.m. thing going on again. Well, it definitely didn't end in uh, Lake Erie. Lake Erie to Kecksburg is a bit of a distance, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, good bet. Yeah, because that's in the northern part of the western Pennsylvania. Kecksburg is more towards the southern part. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, you're you're looking at more of a you know, now they say somewhere near the western part of Lake Erie. Yeah, so I I guess. <clears throat> Cuz Kecksburg is only a, a few miles from the Pennsylvania West Virginia border. Yeah, it's on the what they can they call Chestnut Ridge, yeah, which yeah, runs yeah. from West Virginia all the way up into PA. Speaking of Chestnut Ridge, uh, for those who are fans of the Small Town Monster, uh, I don't know if you want to call them documentaries or series. I think that it's a doc. I think each one is actually kind of a separate documentary. They just happen to be putting them out mm-hmm. in a succession. Yeah. Well, anybody who is interested in all in all things strange, definitely check out Small Town Monsters. Their their documentary they're, they're really really great and they have one called Invasion of the Chestnut Invasion of Chestnut Ridge which is basically pertaining to a lot of this and and like we talked about before a lot of the weird phenomenon that happens over there great great uh, program I I highly recommend you you check it out that yeah I I absolutely love I actually watched that one and a few other ones of theirs but. <laughs> I just yeah. watched uh, Beast of Bray Road recently. Totally, totally uh, uh, digressing here. Uh, that is so freaking good. Narrated by Lyle Blackburn. We had him on the show. Phenomenal, phenomenal guy. Uh, just the way that one was produced, I thought, personally, I thought that was one of the best ones Small Town Monsters did to date. Um, I know they're coming out with a lot more, but. Uh, Anyways, check out Invasion of Chestnut Ridge. I think it's on Amazon Prime. That's where I watched it. Um, it'll give you a lot more information about all this. I actually watched it on Tubi TV streaming mm-hmm. app uh, for free. I don't know what Amazon Prime. I don't do that stuff. So I don't get into the governmental controlled <laughs> available surveillance of my shopping. <laughs> I got Ewoks on my property. <laughs> Ewoks. <laughs> I don't want the government coming to my property and watching my Ewoks. That's right. Yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing when I retire from all this. Ewok. The wife, the wife and I are raising Ewoks that we decided that a few years ago. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Uh, so back to the topic. Uh, a 1967 article by two astronomers in the Journal of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada used the seismographic record to pinpoint the time of passage over the Detroit area to be 4.43 p.m. In addition, they used photographs of the trail taken north of Detroit at two different locations to triangulate the trajectory of the object. Uh, they concluded that the fireball was descending at a steep angle, moving from the southwest to the northeast, and uh, and likely impacted on the northwestern shore of Lake Erie near Windsor, Ontario. Hmm. Now, the JRASC trajectory was at Which nearly is the same place I just mentioned. Yeah. I just like to use the abbreviations. The acronyms. Yeah, because yeah, I didn't want to have to go back through everything you just said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, was at nearly a right angle to the proposed early, the earlier story by the Sky and Telescope, or the trajectory would have taken the fireball in the direction of western Pennsylvania and Kecksburg. Mm-hmm. 
Thus, if the calculations was correct, this would rule out the fireball being in any way with what many or may or may not have been happening in Kecksburg. Now, this article is often, you know, cited by skeptics to debunk the notion of a UFO crash at Kecksburg. So, if they're saying that it it's not what happened in Kecksburg, or if they're saying Kecksburg is false, and they're saying it crashed on the shore, uh, the northwestern shore of Lake Erie, where's that well let's get back into that article okay that article has been criticized for lacking an error analysis Mm -hmm. since the triangulation is based used by the astronomers in their calculations was very narrow even very small errors in determination of direction could in a very different could end up in a very different um triangulation of trajectory mm-hmm. measurement errors of a slightly more than one half degree would make a possible make a possible a straight line trajectory towards the Kecksburg area mm-hmm. and a much shallower angle of descent than reported in that article it was pointed out that the photos used actually show the fireballs trail becoming progressively thinner, suggesting the motion away from the camera or in the direction of Pennsylvania had the the trajectory had been sideways to the camera as contended in the article, the trail would have likely remained consistently thick as it went through. Right. So again, this is improper data presented as fact. Right, if you right. want to, if you want to debunk it, you go one hundred percent with what they had said. Even that's that's going to be your debunking statement. Was that it couldn't have happened? It would have crashed here. Right, right. But when somebody with actual an analysis and analytical skills and scientific, <laughs> anal, you know, analyzation is done on this, it shows that this object with their trajectory does not match what is actually going on in real life, but it's regurgitated as fact instead of the actual statement and analyzation being done correctly. Right. Right. Hmm. Well, uh, and another, another, uh, story says in December of 20, 2005, just before the 40th anniversary of the Kecksburg incident, NASA released a statement reporting that experts had examined metallic fragments from the area and determined they were, in fact, from a Russian satellite that re-entered the atmosphere and broke up, uh, but records of their findings were lost in the 1990s, which we had mentioned before. Uh, Leslie Keane Kane, described as an investigative reporter backed by the Sci-Fi Channel, uh, reportedly sued NASA under the Freedom of Information Act for the lost NASA records. In October uh, 26 and 27, in 2007, uh, NASA agreed to search for those records after being ordered by a court. During the hearing, Steve McConnell, NASA's public liaison officer, testified that two boxes of papers from the time of the Kecksburg incident were missing, 
loss of records is not a unique case for NASA. For example, the original tapes recorded during the televised Apollo 11 moon landing were misplaced or reused. In 2008, space writer James Oberg suggested that NASA was unlikely to possess any such documents since, in his view, it was highly likely that the supposed NASA team that investigated the site were in fact Air Force personnel who identified themselves as NASA personnel. Something regularly done by the military personnel in civilian clothes during the 1960s. The further He further suggested that... Uh, Kane's uh, or Kane's actions uh, was more than a publicity stunt for the benefit of Kane's employers. So there's that. Yeah, which honestly, from my understanding of NASA, the actual outline of operation, mm-hmm. NASA would not be responsible for the actual investigation of something like this, mm-hmm. it would fall on the military, most likely the Air Force. But then again, if you look at where most of NASA's personnel comes from back in the 60s, it's the Air Force. It's, you know, the Air Corps and stuff like that became the Air Force and NASA drew heavily from there. So, you know, it, it's kind of hard to say on that end of it. I think really when you're backed by the sci-fi channel and you're, you know, doing some show on this stuff, it, it does kind of become a publicity stunt because you're suing for these, you know, boxes of information. You know, it's not a scientific study being done in this information is, you know, need it more so. Yeah. But yeah, I could that's where people always get into the men in black and stuff like that, you know, because there is misidentification of personnel. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, people, you know, they're out of uniform. So they say they're with NASA or they, you know, in uniform, but they have some kind of, you know, differential patchwork or something on their uniform. So all of a sudden they become somebody else. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, one of the possible explanations to all this is this Cosmos uh, 96, mm-hmm. this Russian you know, space probe. And it's always kind of that's the speculation that the Kecksburg incident may be debris from the Soviet satellite. Mm-hmm. Now, Cosmos 96 had a bell or acorn like shape similar to the object reported by eyewitnesses. The problem here is the actual Cosmos 96 was much smaller than what the witnesses report. Mm. Um, Now, in 1991, U.S. Space Command concluded that Cosmos 96 had crashed in Canada. Okay. (coughs) So it crashes in Canada at 3.18 a.m., on December 9th, 1965, about 13 hours before the fireball thought to be the Kecksburg object undergoes re-entry and was recorded at 4.45 p.m. Now, in addition, in a 2003 interview, chief scientist of orbital debris at NASA, Mm -hmm. Johnson Space Center, 
Nicholas L. Johnson stated, I can tell you categorically that there that there is no way that any debris from Cosmos 96 could have landed in Pennsylvania anywhere around 4.45 p.m. That's an absolute. Orbital mechanics is very strict. Basically saying the science of this object falling through orbit is, you know, there's, there's no scientific way this could happen. Mm-hmm. So... You have an object that partially fits the description. Mm-hmm. Smaller than what people describe, but as we all know, people describe a lot of things being a lot bigger than they are. Right. You know, a kid always remembers a house being bigger than it is when you're grown up. Mm-hmm. You know, you remember, you know, you're when they did the thing on the Mothman, I forget what channel that was, but they did the test where they drove the people down the roadway and had different sized objects along the road with like reflectors for eyes and had the people drive at the speed they claimed they were driving at the night they saw the Mothman and people identified a very small statue with the reflectors for eyes as what was the nine foot tall Mothman that they saw. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't know how much of a difference the Cosmos 96 size wise would have had. I imagine it was a great difference that nine foot by nine foot might be a little stretch of the imagination to make work. Mm -hmm. But a nine foot tall Mothman turns out to be a two and a half foot tall creature when picked out by eyewitnesses. Uh-huh. So that's, you know, one of the things. It could be a, just be a meteor. You mm-hmm. know, that does happen. Could be a meteor that fell a short time after the Cosmos 96 came down, like 13 hours later. Right. Not impossible. That's where the conspiracy stuff starts to come out in this case. This is where the Nazis and their super weapons enter the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, the identification given or reported to be what fell in Kecksburg is Diglockin, mm-hmm. which is the bell. Right. This was a you know reported top. Do you want me to bring? Do you want me to bring the picture of that up quick so people could see? Yeah, bring up the bell. Bring her up. All right. So this, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, is the what the bell supposedly looked like or does look like. Yeah, this is what the bell is claimed to have looked like. And, you know, this was a scientific and technology device, you know, a secret weapon. It's one of Hitler's wonder weapons, you know, from the end of the war when he was, you know, telling everybody, don't worry, we have these weapons that will change the tide of the war. Now, the only thing with this is, this is the first time this whole Bell Diglockin object is described is by a Polish journalist and author, Igor Witowski, <laughs> in a um, you know book he had written in two thousand ish about the wonder weapons of Hitler. Mm-hmm. 
And it's also written about by a military journalist and author, Nick Cook, and a writer by the name of Joseph P. Farrell, um, who was, you know, writes association stories that go with the Nazi occult and anti-gravity free energy research. Um, now, I have heard testimony from somebody who claims to be an eyewitness uh, to the maps kept by the Nazis on where these wonder, wep- wonder weapon projects were. Mm-hmm. Of course, the person was in charge of reviewing information captured from the Nazis and, you know, from Germany during World War II. And basically says, yeah, there was a map captured by a copy captured by the U.S. government, a a captured copy that the British had come across. Mm. And he basically claims that, oh, yeah, this was kept was sent above us and was thrown away. It was considered not important. I doubt that story to be true Mm -hmm. due to the fact of the operation, you know, that were being conducted to pull Nazi scientists out of Germany, you know, and bring them to the U S that the operations to pull, you know, high-ranking Nazi officers out and make them disappear to be used later. Mm-hmm. You know, our whole NASA, you know, gr- original NASA group is basically captured Nazi scientists mixed in with a few, you know, American-bred scientists. So mm-hmm. I don't think a map describing where the SS had these weapons kept or were building them would have just been tossed out. Right. You know, and basically the the Bell story, the way it comes to be public is it was a transcript from an interrogation of a former, former Nazi SS officer, uh, Jacob Sporenberg, mm-hmm. I guess. I don't do the Nazi conversation list stuff, but, uh, you know, it was alleged transcript. It was shown to this guy in 1997. So here we are, 1997, the war ends in 45, you know, you got 52 years that this, you know, document has been sitting, Mm -hmm. you know, and of course, this is from an unnamed Polish intelligent contact that lets this author see this document. He was never allowed to photograph it, but he was allowed to transcribe it. It wasn't allowed to make any kind of copy of it, but he was allowed to he was allowed to write down what he saw. Right, right. Yeah, there's no real evidence to back up his statement, except for he claims to have seen this and wrote it. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Nick Cook wrote a version, you know, adding his own statements and views on what the Polish author had originally found in a book called The Hunt for Zero Point. And, 
you know, there, there are some skeptics on this that wrote that, you know, the original Polish author was recycling information from the 1960s rumored of Nazi occult scientists first published in the Morning Magician, you know, a device that few outside of the fringe culture thinking actually existed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's, there's definitely some strange things that go on with the whole, you know, Diglock and Bell story. Right, right. You know, and now the problem is, of course, when you read that story, it puts the nine, the nine to um, 12 foot size becomes the size of what the bell is reported to have been. Right. You know, basically it was nine feet wide by 12 to 15 foot high, you know, shaped similar to a large bell. It has, you know, rooms around the bottom of it. Now remember, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Right, right. Did the Kecksburg acorn-shaped rune-covered story come before the 1997-2000-and-something Nazi bell story? Yeah, that's the hard thing there. That goes back to what you yeah. were saying what you were saying earlier with the is it how do we know any of this is real? Like Yeah, yeah. You know well, short of something it, falling. Yeah. But what what I find kind of weird in the whole um similarities between the bell and the Kecksburg object is what did you say the okay, you said uh Nine feet wide, twelve to fifteen feet high. Right. Mm-hmm. Let me go. Yes, that that was just on here. Um, so this acorn bell-shaped thing, eight to ten feet wide, ten to twelve feet tall. Very, very close in size. Very, very close in the way it physically looks. And doesn't the bell? Did you did you say already uh, that the bell had hieroglyphs across it? The bottom. Yeah. Of it too? What they can, what they called runes, basically. Yeah. Helped. Yeah. Yeah, it was rune system writing on it. Yeah, but it wasn't any kind of uh, recognized symbol pattern. No, no, it's some kind of, you know, strange occult type writing on it. Mm Mm-hmm. So... Well, I guess kind of what what I can't figure out is, and maybe did maybe you had already mentioned it. Sorry, because I was I was trying to find a similarity there while uh, you were talking. What would uh, the what would that bell be doing in Pennsylvania at that time? Because that's how many years past the end of World War, uh, the end of the 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 World War Two. That's well. It's 20 years, basically, 45, 65. Um, Well, that's the whole conspiracy of it all is, you know, did we capture these wonder, you know, these specialty weapons that Hitler had? Were they turned over by high-level Nazis towards the end of the war? You know, basically figuring 
well, they didn't want the Soviets to have them. They were staunch anti-communists, so they would never want the Soviets to have this weaponry. You know, so were they given to the U.S. government, the British government? Were we running tests with the doctors who were trying to figure them out? Yeah, or the doctors who had built them? Did they become our, you know, our, you know, people that worked for our government and stuff like that? Because we do have actual Nazis who worked for our government. Right, right. You know, so that it lends the the conspiracy end of all this is well, we captured this. You know, there were nine reported sites, and basically, I had asked on Facebook last week, and if anybody could, you know, maybe had any information or you know knew a copy of this book that you know that the British basically some point released a book with this information in it, but it was heavily edited. Compared mm, to the original copy, you know, they basically feel the Soviets did come into possession because the Soviets were doing the same thing. They were snatching up scientists left and right when they could or high level, you know, d- you know, high level Nazis and stuff like that for different reasons. Right. But, you know, I was actually watching a documentary last night on the real Inglorious bastards. Mm. And they talked about a measurement factory that was producing jets up until 1944 they already had these jets ready to go the problem was due to the tide the tide of the war changing they didn't have materials to finish but they had built a factory inside of a mountain that had big steel blast doors on the front of it and they had these measurement jets ready to go in 44 Mm-hmm. So the Nazis definitely had technology that was ahead of what we were working with, what the British were working with, and what basically the Russians were working with. Yeah. So it always lends more, you know, credibility to these conspiracies that the Nazis actually had these zero point energy weapons. Um, that some of them were turned over to the U.S. government, you know. Th- through back alley means to prevent the Soviets from getting them or for the doctors who actually built them and were working on them to continue their research. You know, at that point towards the end of the war, it became less about defeating the Nazis and more about making sure we had the technology advancements that they had to fight the Soviets eventually. Mm hmm. So, you know, they, the Germans were working in, you know, the fields of anti-gravity propulsion. And I was actually listening to a presentation the other day that basically anti-gravity propulsion was solved in the 1930s mm-hmm. or 1950s, I believe. The problem was all the information about it disappears out of the books. Like there's grants and, and there's, you know, research papers produced that show up in the 1920s, 1930s into the 1940s, mm-hmm. basically showing that anti, you know, anti-gravity propulsion systems work and can be built and can be controlled. But then all of a sudden one day all the information disappeared. Like the grants go away, they disappear off the records, which is 
you know, where they get into the black budgets of the government and stuff like that, where conspiracy people then say, oh, well, there's all this black budget money that nobody knows where it went. And that's why that's why these projects are, you know, kept secret. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't necessarily buy into all that where, you know, all this black budget money is being spent to, you know, keep the bell a secret from humanity. Right, right. So that's pretty much the German, you know, how do we make this a grand conspiracy involving the Nazis, you know, and everything else. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I guess it could be, like you said, we had obtained certain weapons or vehicles, crafts, whatever you want to call it, technology. Uh And it was the U.S. fiddling around with it. And maybe they set something off and it took off. They could control it. It landed. They took it back. Now, I'm going to kind of go on where that I mean that that's a conspiracy, right? That's a, a kind of a crazy conspiracy. But I, I I don't know. I was just thinking about this and I want to see what you think. So we we like a lot of strange things, right? We have a lot of a lot of different uh uh paranormal or cryptozoological uh phenomenon situations stories incidences and uh, i know one of them that i'm about to talk to uh, talk about is is near and dear to your heart i just got to thinking and this is totally radical uh, off the wall but hear me out okay so on stangordon.info on his uh, on his site stan gordon had said um let me find it again here. I just, I had to go back to it. He says, I have also received anonymous tips that pointed me in the right direction, which helped to uncover other details before unsolved mysteries broadcast their story about Kecksburg in 1990. Um, he says, I was contacted by a former air force security policeman who told me that he was among the unit that guarded the object from PA. When it arrived in the early hours of December 10th in 1965 at Lockbourne Air Force near Columbus, Ohio, he remembers extreme security measures at the time and says that the object was only at the base for a short time and then continued on to Wright-Patterson Air Force Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Right? Mm -hmm. It traveled from PA to Ohio. Let me see if I can bring this up really quick. Right, Patterson Air Force Base, where every piece of UFO is reported to have went at some point. Right, right, but but hear me out. I'm gonna try and share share my screen here. Yeah, and this is totally off the wall, totally off the wall. But bear with me. Let's see. Let me see if I can share this screen really quick. Uh, hold on. Okay. Can you see that? Yeah, I see a map. Yeah. So do you see my pointer moving, the, the mouse? Yes. Screen? Okay. So up here is Kecksburg, PA, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 
Let's see. Here's Columbus, Ohio, where it went to the first base, right? Uh And out here is the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Mm -hmm. So let's say the military took it. And rather than going through I-70 straight across to Columbus and then down to Dayton, uh, which is a heavily trafficked or traveled route, right? Mm -hmm. They have this thing. They want to keep it secret. They want to keep it kind of hidden. So when they first picked it up, it was on the back of the flatbed truck that people said that they saw it on covered by tarps and all that stuff. So let's just say they traveled south a little bit, right? That took maybe an alternate okay. route, okay? So what? what is not that much further south? Point Pleasant, West Virginia, right? So 1965, December of 1965, we talked about this is what the Kecksburg thing happened, right? So almost yeah. a year later, November 12th, 1966 to December 15th, 1967 is when all the Mothman stuff started happening in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Mm-hmm. What if this truly was an alien craft and during transport or transit or even maybe uh, after it crashed, it, it left it's it's craft hidden the woods and started traveling this creature what if there's a connection between this ufo crash and the mothman incidents think about it oh i am i'm just considering the well you also got to remember what was in point pleasant the TNT bunkers and all the other military presence that was down there. That was down there. So what if we don't even say it's an escaped alien, but instead of Wright Patterson being the home for all this alleged alien spacecraft technology, Mm -hmm. what if Point Pleasant or Point South of Point Point Pleasant, where you already had a high military presence. You already had factories and bunkers and buildings being, you know, that were built already had been in use, had been, you know, some had been decommissioned, some were still, you know, in operation. Mm -hmm. Um, When you get out into some of those parts of West Virginia, there ain't a lot around there. There isn't prying eyes. Like I've driven through parts of West Virginia where randomly along a river, you will come upon a factory building mm-hmm. that stretches a good mile and a half mm-hmm. that is in operation that you would never have a clue is even what it does because it's on the opposite side of the river from a highway. Yep. It doesn't look like there's many access roads to it. It doesn't look like there's you know, a lot of stuff that goes on around it. There's no town around it. It's just mm-hmm. a factory that stretches over a mile and a half alongside a highway, alongside a river on the, uh, you know, and a highway over from it. So I, I could follow along with your theory. Mm-hmm. You know, is it something or is the Mothman part of some kind of test of a zero point energy? You know, but then, then you kind of get into that Preston Nichols, uh, Montauk project, Al Bulick, yeah, we're pulling invisible Bigfoots through portals to that can well, only be seen on camera. And <laughs> right, 
But I mean, and you always because you're talking about like anti gravity and stuff like that. The mystery hole in West Virginia. What hey, is hey, 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 hey. Let's not talk about our private lives. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Your nickname back in college. <laughs> but uh, in Anstead, West Virginia, there's the, the mystery hole where it has that anti, like the gravity defying hole or whatever. Oh, the Borgia effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's not the only place that has it, actually. Right, right. No, I'm just saying, but there's this. Maybe that location has some sort of uh, uh, significance. You know what I mean? And even in West Virginia, there's all those, like like in Tennessee, how there's so many cave systems that you don't even know about. Who's to say that a lot of these cave systems in West Virginia aren't used as bunkers or or some sort of a holding facility in, inside of a mountain to keep something contained? Maybe well, you not. have like... You have like the Brown Mount Lights in Tennessee where they claim there's a UFO base in Brown Mountain and there's a there's a weird rock that covers this cave entrance that clearly it's a smooth flat rock that looks like somebody put it in front of this hole instead of it naturally fell there. Mm-hmm. You know, so you you are talking about an area, you know, it's also one of the more it's early settled parts of America, but yet it's also a very select group of people that settled that part mm-hmm. of America. You know, they're very, it's Appalachia. You know, it is that backwoods Appalachia, Hatfields, McCoy, blood feud, you know, part of our country. And it stretches into the state we're from. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I don't, I mean, we could connect so many different pieces to this story. But don't you think it's just so kind of ironic how, I mean, it was, it's what a difference of like 200 and some miles, which really isn't that far. And especially since the Mothman was winged, you know, that's an easy flight for the Mothman, you know, but let's just say, like I said, they were going to these Air Force bases. They took a southern route to kind of stay out of the 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 view the view of the public. You know, it got out because maybe you know because they, they said the the craft was solid, no no damage done to it. It was just this solid metal. It it opened the hatch, jumped out, took off. You know what I mean? Tried to hide or whatever. Or like you said, with all the different military bases and the TNT uh, storage units down there. And I think there was a TNT, uh, uh, what do you call it? A factory. Factory, yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe, like you said, maybe they were taking it to uh, a different location and just, you know, everybody assumed it was going to that other Air Force base. I don't know. Like I said, it's totally left field, but. It's just ironic that it wasn't even a year later, like that. You know what I mean? You had this UFO, supposed UFO crash, and then all of a sudden, this alien esque creature tormenting a town that isn't really that far away. Oh yeah, I mean, I could also tie the Nazis to the Confederate government to all these, you know, special projects, but it would be a long string that I'd have to tie up in the end. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not, it's not possible. I'm just saying I could tie the Confederate government to the Nazis in a few 
simple steps mm. and I don't know, it, to, it, some, I just, to some of this stuff too yeah yeah it's just it, it's it's just a, a, a very coincidental oh you yeah I yeah mean? i don't i don't think i don't think anything you're saying is any crazier than this is a german wonder weapon project that was brought to america that we were playing with that crashed in kexburg or or any more weird that it was actually a ufo you know yeah. what i mean like it's all strange. it's all it's it's an area of high strangeness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with a lot of strange unusual strings that could tie all together could be completely random coincidences that they just happen to happen in these areas at a high frequency yeah or could end up in a loose end you know yeah um which kind of takes me to the next kind of part is you're talking about this high frequency area one of the things well i guess a continuation i guess we could call it a continuation to tonight's show what we want to talk about uh next week is a lot of the uh strange phenomenon on the Alge- the Allegheny uh park area in western Pennsylvania a lot of the different especially Bigfoot sightings and whatnot and then if if we could fit it all into one show if not maybe we'll make this a three-part thing um Bigfoot's connection to UFO and especially in the late 60s early 70s in that area of Pennsylvania excuse me I'm starting to lose my voice um there was a lot of uh connections there or a lot of sightings a lot of reports that could kind of place the two things together so in the meantime anybody listening i pose this question to you if you know of anything uh bigfoot ufo connection doesn't necessarily have to be in western pennsylvania that's just the area that we're going to be focusing on any kind of stories, any kind of reports, any kind of information, please send it to us. You can send it to us on Facebook or send it to our email. It's encounters at explorersgroup.com. Let us know what you think. Let us know some of your ideas. And uh, like I said, this could potentially be a two to three part uh, topic. So yeah, that's about it. I mean, you already have this. I mean, we spent the entire night talking about a purported UFO crash in this high frequency area. And then, like I said, you do have the the possible connection of the Mothman due to its closeness and proximity and the duration of time. It was all very relevant within that time period. So just food for thought. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely an interesting little, you know, if we're going to stretch our legs sometimes on some of these cases and ideas, it's definitely something it's not out of the realm of possibility. Because mm-hmm. yeah. that's what we're after. I mean, we're seeking the truth. You know, we are kind of explorers in, in a way, all of us, not just Chad and I, but all of you who take this journey with us. I mean, we're all into this for one reason. I mean, we we, we like the unknown. We like all things strange and this you know anything is possible you know so on that note that was our show for this evening the kecksburg ufo incident 
Uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Um, and I'll go through the regular ending spiel. You could find us at our website, www.explorersgroup.com. There you can enjoy some archive shows and check out some of the information we have on there. You can find us on Twitter at Explorers Group. You could talk to us there. Feed us any kind of information you think could be relevant to this uh, topic. Uh, obviously on Facebook, facebook.com backslash Explorers Group. We are on Instagram at instagram.com backslash Explorers Group. Share some pictures and whatever you do on Instagram. I don't know. I don't use it that much. Um, but again, we are on iTunes and we're on YouTube. You have to go on there and search Explorers Seekers of the Truth. And as always, I ask, please go to iTunes, search out Explorers Seekers of the Truth. Give us a five-star rating. We would greatly, greatly appreciate it. Leave us some uh, comments on there, positive, preferably. If you don't have anything nice to say, please keep it to yourself. <laughs> don't ruin our chances of getting our show uh, placed on iTunes, I beg you. So other than that, Chad, as always, my friend, thank you so much for uh, being here with me on this little journey that we take. Yeah, man. Thank you. Um, of course, you know, if it wasn't for technical difficulties, the show would never happen. Uh, <laughs> you know, I apologize for being on the phone. I don't know how much difference it makes in my beautifulness or not, but well, to be perfectly honest with you, there were a couple times where it got a little pixelated, but honestly, I think your phone camera is a hell of a lot clearer than, than your computer monitor. Yeah. I, well, I have that other high def, uh, camera that I should probably use eventually, but I just don't ever connect it the right way. Mm -hmm. But I also got to go now and figure out why BeLive is not connecting my camera to the service, but then all of a sudden started connecting my camera to the service, but then my microphone didn't work. So that's just the process all the time. Mm -hmm. Even though I don't unplug anything or touch anything, it just never seems to keep the same connection. I gotta love right. a dog barking behind me, of course, too. Yeah, that's what they do. That's what they do. Yeah. I don't know if you heard any loud bangs, but uh, it's so cold uh, up here in my part of Pennsylvania. The temps are dropping into negative numbers, and the boards on the deck connected to my studio off the garage has been popping all night long. So You, be you better hope it doesn't disconnect from your studio and you have to uh, I fall <laughs> to freedom. <I> but. <laughs> But yeah, so buddy, it was yep. a pleasure as always. Everyone, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for supporting our show. We love you all. And uh, hopefully, hopefully, we'll see you next week. So until then, y'all take care. Yep. Bye, everybody. <laughs>